Welcome to the Frontline Gastroenterology Podcast, based on the paper, Minimally Invasive Endoscopic Therapies for Gastroesophageal Reflux Disease, published online in Frontline Gastroenterology in February 2023. My name is Dr. Philip Smith, Deputy Editor of Frontline Gastroenterology and Social Media Associate Editor and Honorary Consultant Gastroenterologist at the Royal Liverpool Hospital, Liverpool United Kingdom. And my co-interviewer is Dr. Vivek Goodry, Frontline Gastroenterology Training Editor, Clinical Research Fellow and Registrar in Gastroenterology at Leeds Teaching Hospitals NHS Trust, Leeds, United Kingdom. And we extend a very warm welcome to Dr. Nassar Aslam, Endoscopy Research Fellow at University College London Hospitals NHS Foundation Trust, London, UK. Dr. Aslam is the first author on this excellent paper. Dr. Aslam, thanks so much for joining us to do this podcast today to discuss this really interesting and clinically relevant topic, which really leads me into my first question. Can you explain the background to this paper in terms of how common gastroesophageal reflux disease is, the consequences of it, and why minimally invasive endoscopic therapies are needed? Uh, Thank you for inviting me onto the podcast. It's a real pleasure to be on here and to be able to talk about this paper. I'd like to start by thanking my co-authors. This paper was a real group effort that was led by our senior author and my supervisor, Dr. Rayan Hydri. Now, onto your first question. You know, it doesn't matter whether you're going to be a general gastroenterologist or you're a transplant hepatologist. We will all come across patients with troublesome gourd. And in the paper, we reference a nicely written systematic review that was published in Nature in 2020 that addresses this exact question. They determined that the global pool prevalence of gourd was roughly 14%. Now, if we focus specifically on the Western world, where we're experiencing an obesity epidemic, that number is probably upwards of 20%. In terms of long-term implications, we all know that gourd can lead to esophagitis, esophageal strictures and ulceration, And furthermore, 10 to 15% of these patients with chronic gourd will develop Barrett's esophagus. And this is a pre-malignant condition where patients have an increased risk of developing esophageal adenocarcinoma. Now, as gastroenterologists, this is what we focus on. But we also need to be cognizant and wary of the fact that gourd has a massive impact on patients' health-related quality of life, both physical and mental. And it's estimated when you add up the money spent on over-the-counter medications, days off work, GP appointments and healthcare resources. In the UK, we're probably spending about £760 million a year on this condition alone. And this brings me on to why we need endoscopic treatments. If you look at the current treatment paradigm, over on the left on one side, we have lifestyle intervention and pharmacotherapy with PPIs, H2RA and alginates. And way on the other end of the spectrum, we have our invasive anti-reflux surgery. So endoscopic anti-reflux therapies really offer a minimally invasive option for patients who are unwilling to undergo surgical treatment or take lifelong medication and offer something in between the two extremes of the paradigm. In this podcast, I'll focus specifically on streta and transoral insidious fundoplication, or TIF as it's called, as these devices have the largest body of evidence at present. Thank you. It's Vivek here. Dr. Aslam, You raise a very interesting point in your paper about patient selection. Can you explain to us, when you see a patient in a clinic with reflux symptoms, how do you select which ones might benefit from anti-reflux endoscopic therapies? 
So what I'd say is that the workup for these patients is akin to that for anti-reflux surgery. So we start off with a clinical assessment and a pharmacological treatment trial to assess PPR responsiveness. Now, one of the really crucial aspects of the workup is performing a high-quality diagnostic gastroscopy. A lot of the devices and techniques that I spoke about in the paper are only suitable for patients with a high hernia which with a longitudinal length less than two centimeters and a hill grade of less than two. And studies have shown that in cases of TIF, for example, underestimation of the high hernia is the commonest cause of TIF failure. So it's not good enough to just do a gastroscopy where you go down, do a quick retroflexion and come out and say there's a small hernia. You need to retroflex, pause, have a look at that hiatus hernia. What does it do during inspiration and expiration? Does it close around the gastroscope? Does it open up to get an appreciation of the hill grade and also to carefully measure the longitudinal length? And of course, it's important to undertake physiological testing and confirm that the patient has pathological esophageal acid exposure with a positive symptom association. Thank you. Can you now explain to us, in broad terms, how these devices work to reduce reflux symptoms? Sure. So TIF is similar to Nissen in terms of the anatomical alteration it achieves. So the device allows you to reconstruct the gastroesophageal valve through performing a number of plications um, around the GOJ. And this creates a 2 to 3 centimeter, 270 degree fundoplication essentially anatomically altering it so you have a more robust barrier which prevents refluxate. Stretter's uh, quite an interesting device. It achieves its effects by delivering radiofrequency thermal energy at various locations above and below the gastroesophageal junction. And this is achieved by four radially located needles on a balloon catheter. Now, the exact mechanism isn't fully known, but it's thought that this radiofrequency energy leads to tissue hypertrophy and remodeling, which results in improved barrier function and a subsequent reduction in gorge symptoms. Um, and I'll briefly touch on two other techniques called arms and armor, because there's a lot of interest about these worldwide at the moment. And I think the main reason is they don't need any fancy proprietary equipment. You can use the kit that we have in all endoscopy rooms. So arms stands for anti-reflux mucosal resection. Um, and essentially what you do is you perform an EMR at the level of the cardia, and when tissue healing occurs and you get, you get scarring, that results in a narrower gastroesophageal valve and changes the angle of hiss, thereby reducing reflux symptoms. And arm is very similar, but instead of performing an EMR, you use an APC protocol to ablate an area of the cardia. And then subsequently, the tissue healing and scarring changes the angle of hiss and narrows that gastroesophageal valve. Thank you. Given the new and different techniques for anti-reflux endoscopic therapies, can you explain to us the learning curve for endoscopists and for their assistants performing these therapies? TIF definitely has the steeper learning curve. And there was a paper study um, published by Mimi Canto's group over in America, which addressed this exact question. And they found that it took about 18 to 20 procedures for an endoscopist to achieve proficiency at TIF. Um, and it wasn't until the 26th procedure when they actually achieved a statistically significant improvement in their time to perform each plication. So it is, it is a tricky technique and device to master, 
But what I will say is I've seen in the UK that there's a lot of hands-on training and a lot of mentoring and proctoring by the device distributor Medispa and Endogastric Solutions who create the device. But it definitely has quite a steep learning curve. Stretch, on the other hand, uh, definitely has a shorter learning curve. And there's been a few papers out there which have said that it probably takes about three procedures or so to finesse the technique. Thank you. I think it's exciting for patients to have a minimally invasive alternative to anti-reflux surgery. However, the ESGE in 2020 recommended against the widespread use of anti-reflux endoscopic therapies, firstly, uh, because of a lack of long-term outcomes, and secondly, because of modest efficacy in only highly selected patients. Have there been since then any new data or any ongoing promising trials we should be looking out for? So one of the developments since the ESG guidelines in 2020 is that the Americans, the ACG, have released their own guidelines in 2022, where they've actually broken down the devices specifically into Stretter and TIFF. And what they recommend is actually Stretter, given the heterogeneous evidence base, they no longer recommend it as an endoscopic treatment for reflux. But TIFF, they do recommend for patients who are unwilling to undergo anti-reflux surgery. And that's sort of a trend that I'm seeing in the UK as well. I've spoken to a few upper GI interventional endoscopists and and Stretter does seem to be falling out of favour. But TIFF does appear to be gaining some traction. But saying that, there's still issues with the evidence base for TIFF. Um, There's a lack of high-quality long-term data. In 2021, Testoni did publish some work looking at nine-year outcome data, but this is prospective registry data, so so it's not as high-quality as an RCT. Um, And the other issue with TIFF is, although most studies show an improvement in health-related quality of life, there are some that don't show any improvement in, in objective physiology. I do agree that These devices are for use in a highly select population and there's a very narrow cohort of patients who could potentially benefit. Um, But something I'd say to look out for in the next five years or so is a technique called CTIF. And this is really taken off in America. Essentially, it's a combined procedure that's performed with the surgeons. Surgeon comes in, they they repair the crural defect, they shorten the hiatus hernia, and then the gastroenterologist does the TIF procedure and performs the fund application using the TIF device. And there's a lot of interest in this. And, and there's been some data published which shows that in the short term, it has similar outcomes to Nissen fund application, but with shorter hospital stays, fewer complications and faster recovery times. And there is a, a big trial ongoing in America, which is a multi-center single blind RCT of CTIF versus laparoscopic Nissens. And that's due to report in 2025. And I think, you know, this CTIF definitely could be uh, something that's really going to change the treatment paradigm in the future. Thank you. That's very interesting. Now, moving on to more clinical aspects, are there any units in the UK offering anti-reflux endoscopic therapies? And if yes, do they accept referrals from other centres? So with regards to TIFF, I'm not aware of any NHS centre offering it. Um, I know that it's available at the Cleveland Clinic in London and the London Clinic on Harley Street. I do get, interesting. I get a lot of uh, referrals to my upper GI clinic at UCLH asking for patients to be considered for TIFF, but I have to always send a letter back saying we don't offer it yet. 
Stretta, I think, is offered at St. George's by Mr. Reddy. And outside of that, I'm not 100% sure of any other centres that offer it. I know Anjan Dar's group up in Darlington published some data on Stretta a few years ago, but I don't know if they offer a Stretta service in the northeast. Thank you, Dr. Aslam. So I've got another pragmatic question, really. That is, what, what do you think will be the barriers to make anti-reflux endoscopic therapies a mainstream option for patients across not just London, where you're based, but the whole of the, the UK? So I think at the moment, we just need a lot more data on these devices and techniques. We need a lot more high-quality randomized controlled trials with larger cohort numbers, particularly over the longer term. If you look at a lot of the trials that are described in the paper, they looked at outcomes over a six-month to 12-month period, whereas GORD is a chronic ailment. It's not an acute issue. So longer-term data is going to be really important. And trial design in reflux, especially for invasive devices, is tricky. The we know that the placebo response rate for reflux treatment is up to 50%, and it does make trial design quite tricky. There's very little in the way comparing these endoscopic treatments to the surgical gold standard, which is Nissen's. I think some more data out there comparing the two side by side would be really useful to redefining and defining the treatment paradigm for reflux in the future. And finally, I guess, cost analysis. We need to answer the question, do these endoscopic options offer similar outcomes in terms of efficacy and safety, but at a similar or reduced cost? Uh, so I think those are probably the key barriers here to making it widestream. That's great. It's an exciting time, clearly, but there's still a bit of more work to be done. But um, thank you, Dr. Aslan, for those answers and for doing this podcast today. Congratulations again on your fantastic paper being published in Frontline Gastroenterology, both to yourself and to your co-authors, of course, as well. And uh, once again, thank you for doing this. To our listeners, if you'd like to read Dr. Anselm's paper, there's a link um, to the paper underneath this podcast today. So do click on that and and, and read it in, in full. I'd like to take the opportunity to thank my co-interviewer, um, Dr. Vivek Goodry for doing the uh, interview again today. I think he's done a superb job. It's his first podcast with Frontline Gastroenterology, so thank you very much. And uh, I'd like to say to our audience and our listeners, please do join us again in the future for further Frontline Gastroenterology podcasts. Thank you for listening.